It's the New York Peace of Mind with Ricky Sobrano and Colin Henderson. Oh, you can talk a clown into committing suicide, Ricky. You just, yeah. you are just, oh, you are just so down. Not even a bring sad clown. Down, a happy clown. I a talk happy, to joyful clown. You could bring him down. On ESPN New Hampshire. Back here for hour two of New York Peace of Mind. Ricky Sobrano alongside Colin, or along with, I keep saying that even though I'm not technically next to you today, Colin, along with Colin Henderson on this Saturday afternoon, taking you up until 4 o'clock. So the best thing is that I could easily just keep going with that and just lie to all our viewers out there, because I'm, I'm sure you just sound so crystal clear on the phone that nobody can tell. Yeah, I always I keep wondering about that, but you, you, you've really bit into this now, so we can't exactly uh, put it back on the table. <laughs> we can't, no, you know, no, we really can't got, get a nice really little charade going. Now. You can't, like, right, what I mean by, like, you can't, like, start the second hour now, like, pretending that I'm next to you. Like, we've gone too far. We've passed that line. I mean, really, it's just one word anyway, just for whatever reason. I keep saying it wrong. Yeah, that's okay. What was the, uh, what was that one word? I couldn't get out a couple of weeks. What was it? Proprioception? Is I don't even know what we were talking means. about. The, the new senses where I couldn't get out. Oh, oh yeah. The, I remember that. That was the yeah. entire episode. What was that about a, that a month out? and a half ago or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. That took you a couple of tries. That yeah, and that, the, that if you remember, time. going back even further, the Lovering Mitsubishi text line. That one you really. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That one this a couple of times. Yeah. yeah. You bit the dirt on that one a couple of times. Yeah, always quick to remember all my faults, Ricky. I see how it is. Oh, always. I mean, that's what I'm here for. I'm not here to build <laughs> you up, Colin. I'm here to tear you down. I'm okay with it. Yeah, yeah, whatever. It's a love-hate relationship. Mostly hate, but we make it work, maybe. Or maybe not. But the New England Patriots, speaking of making it work, they have done that and then some this year. 11-2, and two, and obviously the class of the AFC East and pretty much the entire NFL Thus far this year, they've won a four in a row. Last loss against the Seahawks. That was a tight game at 31-24 five weeks ago. And, of course, we remember the season started off with Tom Brady down the first four games where they managed to go three and one anyway. And now at this point, pretty much just playing for their the home field advantage throughout. They are in pretty good shape with that because Oakland lost last week, so now they have a one-game lead on the Chiefs and the Raiders. But a tough test this week on the road against the Broncos, probably their toughest test of the remaining three. You get the Broncos this week, then you get the Jets on Christmas Eve, and that should be, all things considered, at home. That should be a pretty easy one. And then they finish up with the Dolphins on the road. But, of course, at that point, who even knows if Tom Brady and the rest of the starters will be playing or not. That's very much up for debate and really depends on whether if they win these next two or not. Or, for that matter, if Bill Belichick puts any stock in having home field advantage throughout the playoffs. And who knows what's going through Bill's mind at any given times, and we can't really question it. But the Patriots, it should be a good one this week. When you get the Broncos 8-5, and five, who are still very much fighting for their playoff lives, they are in third place in what's turned into a, a very, very tough AFC West. Check out the AFC West here. We've got Kansas City and, and Oakland 10-3, and three. Denver, the defending Super Bowl champion at 8-5, and five. and San Diego, which is not a bad team, 
They're five and eight despite having a positive point differential. So that division is, is just absolute murder this year. When we talk about the NFC East being tough, the AFC West is even tougher, probably the best division in football right now. So that's what Denver is in. And with Trevor Simeon at the helm coming off of a tough loss to the Titans 13-10 last week, they're still very much fighting for a, a playoff berth. And it's really a, a must-win game to a degree for Denver when you look at especially their next three. You get Patriots, then at Chiefs, and then at the home against the Raiders to finish off the season. I mean, that is a, a brutal stretch. So what it comes down to really for Denver here is that their home games – they have to win them because going into Harrowhead next week will be extremely tough. New England, if there is a losable game of the remaining three, this is it right here, especially when you look at Brady's not-so-great track record. This is one of the few places that he doesn't have a great track record. That is at mile high, and he is just 2-7 and seven there. Right. Now, that also the fact that New England plays in the AFC East while the other two are division rivals, and those games are just more important because of, you know, just any ability to, as they can, still conceivably win this division. Well, they would need to win out, and then the other two would need to go one and two, so it's probably not going to happen. But but yeah, they play play both of them. So in theory, you could get that right there. Yeah. Um, But look, at the end of the day, we know that. Denver is going to have to earn their way into the postseason, and Denver is going to have to do it by their defense. In a similar way that we spoke a little bit about the Giants beforehand with a defense that is being asked to do so much because of a relatively ineffective offense, Trevor Simeon and this Denver offense has been mediocre. It hasn't been great. It has been enough no, to get by. generously. Right, it has been enough to get by, but they have been games where they simply were a no-show. Now, this is the, this team won a Super Bowl last year with a mediocre offense. So as long as – and this defense has not taken much of a step back. I mean, I think, I think no one disagrees that last year's defense was probably a step better than this one, than this year's version, but still a top-five defense, a top-three defense in the NFL. So if this – Denver offense could just be counted on to put up 21 points a game. I think we wouldn't have this Denver team would be in much better standing than it is right now going up against three definite playoff teams in the last three weeks to earn their way into the postseason. That being said, right. And correct. Now that being said, the Patriots offense has just been that good. So far this year, since Tom Brady has come back, they are leading the league in most of, in most every offensive category, especially anything passing. He has been nothing short of brilliant since he has come off the commissioner's exempt list after the four-game suspension. Because of how good he has been, this game is obviously going to come down to, just like it has been over the last couple of years when these two teams have faced off, and that is Tom Brady and this Patriot offense that you can pretty much write in 28 points a week for going up against a Denver defense that rarely gives up more than 20 points, rarely gives up more than 15, but we'll give it at 20 based on the offense that's here. So this is going to be, this game is going to be entirely won and lost on that side of the ball. Who blinks first? Who is the one that breaks? Because those are the strengths of both teams. The new England defense 
average, average to above average, and I put that in probably the 15 to 10 range there, going up against this struggling Denver offense. Obviously, both sides, uh, both teams' weaknesses going up against each other there, but both teams' strengths going up when it's New England's offense versus Denver's defense, and that's where this game is going to be won. Can they get to Tom Brady? Can they pressure him? Can they give him twinkle toes? Because we have seen the only way that you beat Tom Brady is by making him worried in the pocket. And if you can't do that, he's going to pick you apart for 375 yards. And generally with a four-man rush, it needs to be done too. Because if you blitz, Brady will, of course, pick you apart. And when the Giants were able to beat Brady in two Super Bowls, it was, of course, with a four-man rush that they were able to get to him. So they didn't need to send that extra blitzer and they didn't leave themselves open in the secondary. But if you look at a team that does have the ability to do that, it is... Of course, the Denver Broncos, who was still led by Von Miller, who's having a tremendous season with 13 and a half sacks. They have 38 team sacks, so that's about three per game, which is obviously very, very good. Shane Ray is emerging. Derek Wolf, or Ziggy Wolf, whatever he wants to call himself, is having a very good season with five and a half. So they have a, a legitimate pass rush, obviously, to get to Brady, who has only, only been sacked remarkably just 12 times this year. So that's barely one more or one per game. So New England, the offensive line, and of course Brady's ability to get the ball out quick is just about unparalleled. Couple with the fact that for the first time in a very, very long time, New England has a, a runner in O'Garrett Blunt who is already over a thousand yards. I mean, Blunt is having one of the, the better seasons a, a Patriots running back has had in a long, long time, perhaps since Corey Dillon, even. I can't remember I was offhand. Say Corey Dillon. It might be Dillon. I can't nope, remember the last time a, a Patriots running back had gone over a thousand yards. So they're much more balanced this year than they have been in recent years. And, and that obviously makes them just that much more difficult to defend. But you're right. Generally speaking, a game like this, Patriots, Broncos, when we're talking defense, offense, as long as Trevor Simeon doesn't have a disastrous game, as long as he's just solid. And by solid, I mean, you know, don't turn it over a ton take care of the ball, you know, maybe throw a, a long ball every once in a while to one of your receivers, whether it be Demarius Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders. Generally speaking, just don't lose your team the game. Then this will come down to probably one possession, the Patriots offense versus the Denver defense for the game, everything on the line, power on power, who can get a stop, essentially, or who can impose their will, not necessarily get a stop, but which side can impose their will with the game on the line. I mean, yeah, that's what we all want. But And you're right, Trevor Simeon's going to be the key to that. Can he do enough on his side of the ball to keep Denver's defense in the game, considering we don't expect Denver's defense, even as good as it is, to stymie New England's offense for four quarters? Now, as you bring up LeGarrette Blunt, we talk about this Denver defense and, and in, in its overall defensive sense, and it's, and it's rightly justified how good this defense is, but they're in the bottom half of the league when it comes to rushing defense. If there's one way that New England is going to come out on top this week, it is going to be that LeGarrette Blunt is going to get 20-plus touches, and he is going to have to get – but he's going to have to average close to four yards a carry. Putting, putting New England in third and long, even though they're an excellent third and long team, Denver is number one in the league um, on third downs from seven-plus going up against on defensively. 
So if you are going to beat this Denver defense, you need to run the ball effectively on first and second down and put yourself in good standing on third down, and you can sustain drives there. Again, Trevor Simeon, outside of one game this year, where he threw, I believe, four touchdown passes to Emmanuel Sanders and Demarius Thomas in one game. I want to say that was week two or three. Outside of that, he has not, you cannot bank on 30 points from him. You can, it's tough to bank on 25 points from him. So if New England's offense is able to sustain drives and put the ball in the end zone and not rely on three-point field goals, which is the only other way that you beat Tom Brady is by keeping him out of the end zone and keeping Steven Goskowski busy. If they're able to do that, New England should win this game. We talk New England, Denver in its, you know, in the bigger, broader sense, but more than this year, more than the last four years, New England is the favorite in this game. This isn't so much of a pick 'em. New England is the favorite, and they, and it's up to them to remind everyone exactly why they're the class of the AFC. Well, yeah, there's no doubt there, and obviously the the main reason right off the bat why New England will be the heavy favorite in this game is because of Trevor Simeon and whether Peyton Manning statistically was the same guy that he he had been in years past last year. He still had that name recognition, that cachet, essentially. He was still Peyton Manning going up against Tom Brady. Trevor Simeon is just not to that level, obviously. Never will be in Peyton's prime. Statistically, he might be better than Peyton was arguably last year, but he still just doesn't earn that same respect, and he, he obviously doesn't have the grasp of the offense to make the right calls in all situations that Peyton Manning did. This is only a a second year guy who's getting his first taste of the NFL. I mean, two years ago when he was drafted in the seventh round, this is a guy who was expecting to be an insurance salesman in a couple of years. He never expected to be in this spot. And to your point, he did have that four touchdown game against Cincinnati. That was back in uh, September. That was a 29, 17 win. But otherwise, yeah, you're right. One touchdown, one touchdown, one touchdown, zero. And now the last four weeks, he's been a bit better. Two against Oakland, two against New Orleans. But New Orleans can't stop anything, and he was picked off twice that week. Three in an overtime loss to Kansas City, where Kansas City came back. And then one last week in that 13-10 loss to Tennessee, although he did throw for 334 yards, which is right now a career high. So he's arguably been a bit better lately, but... The thing that really, really kills this Denver team more than anything offensively has been just the complete inability to run the ball. Without C.J. Anderson, we're looking at Devontae Booker as the the featured back, and he's averaging just 3.4 yards per carry. This is a team that has just 1,200 rushing yards on 3.6 yards per carry on the season. They brought in Justin Forsett, who was cut to try to spark the game. It just has not been good at all this year. And that was going to be what they held their hat on coming into this year, the ability to run the ball. It was going to be play defense, three yards and a cloud of dust on offense, and just put yourself in a situation where Simeon doesn't have to do all that much to win the game. And instead, because of the lack of rushing game altogether, Simeon is in a situation where he does need to try to win them games, which is never ideal. But despite all that, and I don't know about you, Colin, I feel like you're going the other way most likely. Despite all that, I feel like of the final three, this is the one that New England loses. I don't see I don't them dis- finishing I don't see them finishing fourteen and two this year. I think they drop 
one of the final three, most likely, again, pending that Dolphins game where maybe they won't even play anybody. Who knows? We'll see, depending on the rest situation. I think this is the one that they lose. I think, again, it's pretty much a a must-win for Denver. Denver's in a situation where they need to win at least two of the final three, conceivably, to get into the playoffs. I think they'll come out with one of their better efforts all season after kind of a dud last week where they just scored 10 points. And this will be a a frustrating game for Brady. I don't think he'll play bad. I don't think he'll get picked off two, three times or anything like that. But this could be the classic Brady game where he's, you know, maybe 60% passing and the yard's just a bit down and Von Miller is in his face a lot. And if they can make them settle for field goals, then Denver can come out on top. I'll say they do so 20 to 17. 2017? Look, I completely agree with you. This has all the makings of that game where Brady in you know in a big time matchup in the regular season just isn't quite himself and you know he takes maybe one on the chin a year but he's so brilliant the other 15 games that no one cares uh I totally believe you agree with you this could be that case but I just don't I'm not sure I trust Denver's offense enough to keep up with Tom Brady's offense even going up against Denver's defense this is not the same Denver defense as last year. As I mentioned, Garrett Blunt, I think, is going to be a huge part of this game. Denver struggling to defend the run. I think he's going to be big. And if they are able to establish the run, there are a few quarterbacks better suited to run play action for the entire game than Tom Brady is. I think this is going to be uh, – I think the Patriots end up winning this game. I think if you talk about them losing one game to the end of the year, it is that Miami game week 17 when they don't have anything to play for. They've already wrapped up home field throughout. I'd say Patriots in this game, 28-17. Yeah, it could go definitely either way. And I am without a doubt going out on a a little bit of a limb here because, again, Trevor Simeon versus Tom Brady. At face value, not a fair fight by any stretch of the imagination, but... I'll say that Denver comes up with a big effort. Remember, on occasion, their offense has shown flashes. 27 points against the good Chiefs defense is nothing to thumb your nose at, even though last week was certainly not ideal with just the 10 points. But I'll say they step up, they do enough, and they'll hand New England a loss, but New England will more than likely end up with home field advantage in the AFC nonetheless. Denver, just a tough place to play, especially in the winter, especially when it's cold, and Brady historically hasn't been great there, but we'll see. Anything could happen this week. It should be a tight one. So we will take a break, and out of the break, we've been talking all football, so move on to a little NBA action. You're listening to New York Peace of Mind here on ESPN New Hampshire. ESPN New Hampshire, celebrating 10 years as Manchester's sports station. Back here on New York Peace of Mind, Ricky Sobrano along with Colin Henderson on this Saturday afternoon, taking you up until 4 o'clock, so about a half hour or 35 minutes more to go before we get our Christmas-slash-holiday break, so to speak. We'll be off the next two weeks because of Christmas Eve and then New Year's Eve. They'll take a little look at the NBA this year and then finish up with some NHL after that, two leagues that we have largely ignored thus far this year because it's been a lot of football going on and haven't been on all that much the last month and a half but got a little NBA in there now 
New York Knicks in action tonight against the Denver Nuggets. That will be another return for Carmelo Anthony to Denver, who's most likely going to play tonight. He missed the Knicks' last game with shoulder soreness. He'll probably be in. And uh, the Knicks haven't won a game in Denver, just reading this quickly, since trading for Melos in uh, 2011. But again, they haven't really played there that much. But the Knicks, nonetheless, 14-12 and 12 this year. And after a somewhat sluggish start, I guess we could call this a pleasant surprise, even though the way they've done it, I guess, has been a little bit more impressive since they did start off kind of poorly and have bounced back. But a 500 or two games over 500 team, I never looked at that as all that unrealistic for this team. And I never bought into the super team label that Derek Rose and a few others threw at them. But this is more or less where we were expecting the Knicks to be at this point. Knowing a largely underwhelming Atlantic Division and Eastern Conference. Yeah, I mean, 14 and 12 is, I think realistic Nick fans, you know, realistic yet optimistic Nick fans were hoping for somewhere. If you, if you pulled them two weeks before a week and a half before Christmas and said, Hey, by the way, we're two games over 500. I think every single one of them would have taken it. I think one of the things that you mentioned is yes, they, you mentioned Carmelo Anthony sitting out the last game. Also Derek Rose sitting out the last game in that loss to the Warriors. Again, why not have them sit versus the Warriors? You're going to lose anyway. You're not going to win that game anyway, so who cares? Exactly. You might as well. You might as well play nothing but the B squad and just give everyone a day of break, a day of rest on that one. But uh, I think when we talk about this Knicks team, we always said the potential is there. Like the potential for them to be to host a playoff game, you know, uh, to host a game seven in the first round is is possible. Not likely, but possible. Now, but that was always based upon that Derrick Rose, Carmelo Anthony, Christoph Porzingis, and Joaquin Noah would all be able to remain healthy. Now, we are not at Christmas yet, and we've had Melo and Rose both sit out games so far this year. The Rose injury, while they're saying right now, is nothing more than day-to-day. Again, we all know how good Derrick Rose can be when he's on the field and how long it can take him to get back onto the court when, uh, when he gets injured, there's, there's unfortunately based on that history, you have to take slight skepticism, slight pessimism to, you know, uh, to this next team a little bit, if they are unable to put that starting five out there every single night. But right now, not every Nick fan, there isn't a Nick fan complaining about two games over 500 with eight days to go till Christmas. Well, to start with, as far as Noah goes, you scratch him entirely because they're better without him on the floor. That's been all but proven thus far. Noah has had issues staying healthy pretty much his whole career, but especially the last three or four. But if there's a guy of those three that you mentioned, of Rose, of Anthony, of Noah, who just is not the same player he once was, it is Noah right now by a landslide. He can defensive rebound, and that's pretty much about it. I mean, he, he is a sieve offensively to the point where he doesn't even need to be guarded anymore. And defensively, even, they've been better with O'Quinn or Hernan Gomez or even Porzingis at center. He has not done the job at all thus far. And at the quarter mark of the season, at the quarter pole, is there really a reason at this point to think that he's suddenly going to find his game 
and become the guy he was three or four years ago? Probably not. So Noah, for better or worse, you take him out of that tally. He's no longer one of those guys who, oh, wait, the Knicks have to have him to be effective. Forget about that. You don't worry about that at this moment. It's Carmelo and obviously Derek Rose who then become the worry. And the question is, can they stay healthy? And the answer is no. Of course not. We know that at this point. Melo will be bumped and bruised a little bit here and there. Hopefully there will be nothing catastrophic. But Rose, we know, he will miss in some way or another 20-ish games, perhaps a little bit more. And if you can just get through the season without him suffering that catastrophic injury that keeps him out half the year or the whole year or puts him out into next year and then beyond, if you can get through that, then you consider it a win. He is going to miss 20 to 25 games. We know that. That is Derrick Rose at this point. He's only missed, I believe, three thus far, which has been exceedingly fortunate. The issue will then become, when you do have to, without a doubt, have to play without him, is Brandon Jennings the answer. And Brandon Jennings, if you're looking for somebody who's been disappointing thus far, it is Jennings who is only averaging eight points per game. And he was looked at sort of at his best Jennings can be, I call him kind of like a a point guard J.R. Smith. And that he, he's actually a point guard, but he's more of a shoot-first guy. He can be the energizer in that second unit and just shoot with reckless abandon. His percentages won't be pretty. But you know what? He can go out and get you maybe 14, 15 a game. And on the odd night, he'll go off for 20 or 25. And that just hasn't happened at all. And that's problematic. Because Jennings, like it or not, is going to have to play. There isn't really a third point guard on this roster. He's going to have to play, and he's going to have to play major minutes, and he's probably going to have to start for stretches this season. And he hasn't shown he's able to do that thus far. I couldn't agree more. Brandon Jennings was a guy who I was I lauded the Knicks in the offseason for signing him. I thought he was – you talk about buying low on a guy who has shown the ability to put the ball into the net, to use him as a J.R. Smith, as a six-man off the floor, play him at the one or the two, especially knowing that – Derek Rose, your starting number one, is an injury risk at his best. So I, I, I love the tra- I love the signing in the offseason, but you're absolutely right. He has not lived up to that billing. He has not lived up to that disruptive, you know, that disruptive force off the bench to go up against another team's second unit and, you know, really kind of take over a game for a little bit. He's just simply not that player. And that's more disappointing, especially when you compare that to how well he looked in the preseason when it looked like he was in midseason form. He looked excellent in the preseason, and that has simply not carried over to the regular season. Now you're absolutely right. He's going to need to be he's going to need to step up, especially if this Nick team, which I think a lot of us hoped would be about here at the coming up towards Christmas, you know, at five hundred or above it. But this is a long season, and with a team that has injury concerns, you know, the bench is going to be asked, especially guys like Brandon Jennings, are going to be asked to play major minutes and contribute in a big way at certain points of this year. And at the end of the season, after 82 games, we'll see exactly how good that bench can be and whether or not this team is in the playoffs. Because we know that Derrick Rose, as you say, is going to miss 20 to 25 games. Carmelo Anthony is probably going to miss somewhere around 20 games this year. That is a quarter of the season for each of those. So it's going to be up to the rest of this team to step up. Well, you hope that Melo, who has uh, 
at the very least, to give him this much. He has a better health track record than yes, Derek Rose by far. You hope that Melo, he'll stay. Last year he played 72, for example. You hope that he'll just miss a couple here and there, more for rest and bumps and bruises and things like that. But yeah, is it realistic to say that, yeah, he could play 67, 68 games and that'll be all things considered a win? Sure. And, and Derek Rose played 66 last year, and that was his most since 2010-2011. So is the 66 even realistic? We don't know. We'll find out. He's looked better than he has certainly the last couple of years. This year, his percentages are up. His effectiveness, generally speaking, is up. Is any of it sustainable? We don't know. And quite frankly, banking on it being sustainable is just not a smart bet because he will miss minimum 20, we could expect. And even if he misses 20 games, you'll probably take that as a Knicks fan as long as he's healthy for the playoffs, assuming if and when the Knicks do get there. But to your point about the Knicks bench or lack thereof, that has been problematic because even right now when everybody is healthy, the lack of bench scoring is noticeable. So when you do have a game without Melo, when you do have a game without Rose, the lack of bench scoring when those guys are now pushed into the starting rotation is even more noticeable. Uh, The likes of Lance Thomas, who was very effective a year or two ago, he hasn't been good at all so far, averaging just 4.8 points per game. Kuzminkas, who's kind of come out of nowhere, he's done okay, a little over four points in 11 minutes, but he routinely doesn't get a lot of burn. Justin Holiday gets about 20 minutes, and he only averages a little under seven per game. There's nobody except Jennings, who plays pushing starter minutes almost, who's even pushing 10 points a game. And that's a bit problematic when you look at the bench. And when you look at the fact that, yeah, Carmelo's probably lost a step, and Derek Rose has probably lost a step. And this is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a lockdown defensive team. So, yeah, without a doubt, you look to the bench and you look for somebody to step up, and it may or may not be there. Porzingis has been everything you could expect him and more. He's an all-star this year, and he'll likely be the Knicks all-star, depending. Carmelo Anthony is kind of fringy about whether he gets there or not this year. But there's only so much you can expect out of the second-year forward on a playoff team. Again, this isn't Carl Anthony Towns who's on a team that nobody expects anything out of. He's not going to get 25 shots a game where he can just chuck it up and go for 25 points. He's got to play within a system, and he has to play with two other stars. So Porzingis at 20 points per game, you're not going to get anything else out of him. And you don't really expect anything else out of him. He has everything. He has been everything you could possibly expect and more. So it is on the other guys around him to step up. And he has been probably the Knicks' best player, and he is obviously the franchise right now. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not much more you can say about Porzingis. He's doing everything that you could have asked for. Yeah, everything that you saw last year, he has brought all of that back this year. He is showing improvement. And every Knicks fan should be ecstatic about the progression that right now he is taking. And what, I was, what I've been very pleasantly happy to see is that when the Giant, I mean, when the Knicks have their full starting five on the floor, he is not fading into the background. And that was always my fear when oh, you yeah. put, mm-hmm. when you added Rose and at the time Noah and Jennings and Mello. That's a lot. I mean, outside of Noah there, you just mentioned three people who like shooting. They are shoot first kind of guys. So I, my fear was always that Porzingis, as good as he is, we need to see him continue to you know, develop 
And the only way he's going to do that is if he has the ball in his hands. They have put the ball in his hands, and that has been something that I think a lot of people were afraid of entering the year with the three ball hawks that they have on that team. He is still getting his looks. He's still getting his shots. He's still leading the team in points. He is doing that. He is doing all of that aspect right. But again, this is a Knicks team that, if they can stay healthy, they are a five to seven seed in the East. This is they can they could pull that off if this team remains healthy. And postseason basketball, I think, is something that a lot of Knicks fans were not, you know, were hopeful but not fully expecting entering the year. So, and right yeah, now, no, you... if you know, at the Cleveland at the Christmas break, barring a, you know, a big losing streak in the next week, considering this is our last show of the year and we have to talk about it like that. Unless barring a big losing streak in the next week, they're going to go into Christmas exactly where they could have drawn up. And when you look at the teams around them, that's really the main thing. When you think about the Knicks as not only a playoff team, but a team that could conceivably finish in the five to seven spot, the three ahead of them, Cleveland, Toronto, Boston, I don't think anybody will argue that the Knicks are in the same class as those teams. They're all, even though the Celtics have, struggled a bit this year no doubt about that they've disappointed a bit Celtics are a better team than the Knicks they're just a lot deeper there's no, no doubt. doubt about that no doubt. but I mean after that we're talking about Milwaukee as the five and Charlotte the six Detroit the seven Atlanta has been very disappointing but they're the eight it seems like maybe the bubble has burst on them pretty much everybody four to count this up 12 in the east is within three games of each other essentially so everybody is right there. Everybody else is very, very close right at this moment. There's a lot of parity in the East, and that's good for the Knicks because that means there's just nobody who is all that good. And if you win 45 games, that will probably be good enough for the five, perhaps not even the four. And that's very, very obtainable for this Knicks team. I mean, I always had the the high water mark of this team if Everything went exactly according to plan. I thought, you know what? Maybe they could win 47, 48 games. I never thought yeah, 50 or anything like that was realistic. But I, I felt 48 was the high water mark, and kind of 40 to 45 was the realistic expectations. And if they just do that, they could even be under 500 conceivably and still make the playoffs. But if they're a game or two north of that border, if they're a game or two over, they could find themselves, as you said, hosting a Game 7, theoretically, in the first round. Yeah, no, I think that is a very obtainable goal right now. And that's about where I capped off their projections as well, is somewhere in that 47-48 win range, more than likely somewhere 40-45. to 45. Last year, that would not have been enough. Last year, that would have barely put them into the 8th seed. This year, because of the parity, because of the mediocreness after the top three, in the in the East, then uh, this it's very conceivable that 45 wins is going to put you in a real good position. It come come the postseason, you will avoid. Because remember, it's not only about just getting in. If you can avoid Cleveland in the first round as the eight seed, if you could avoid Toronto or Boston as the seven and six seed, if you can get up to a four or five seed, you have you just put yourself in a very nice to have a real chance of moving on to the second round. Yeah, the 4-5 is not a scary matchup, whether you're the home team no, or not. not. Assuming, of course, that Atlanta, which was the one other class team, I, I suppose if you want to call them that last year, that's fallen off. Assuming Atlanta doesn't figure it out, 
that's not a matchup that scares you really no matter who it is. So we will take a break, and out of the break, we'll talk a little hockey, some Rangers, Islanders, Devils, and Bruins. You're listening to New York Peace of Mind. You're on ESPN New Hampshire. 1250 ESPN New Hampshire, Manchester's local ESPN. Ricky Sobrato back with Colin Henderson here on New York Peace of Mind. Taking you through the final 12 or so minutes of the show here on this gloomy and snowy Saturday afternoon across the eastern seaboard. And take a little look. I mean, the weather is appropriate for it. Let's touch on some hockey here, which is something we haven't talked about really at all this year because football and had some baseball stuff going down a couple weeks ago and whatever else. Hockey has been completely overlooked, but... Give you a little refresher if you haven't been paying attention thus far. The Rangers in a metropolitan division. They are in second place right now, a point back of the defending champion Pittsburgh Penguins. The metropolitan division has been the toughest in the league thus far. The top five teams all within three points of each other. Washington and Philly also in there. Jersey, after a hot start, has kind of faded and the Islanders bringing up the cellar door right now with 28 points. They've been better lately, but everybody else is winning so much, it just hasn't really mattered. So it's possible that before Christmas, two New York teams will already be essentially eliminated. Not so much because they've been awful. They're both, New Jersey is still over 500. The Islanders are now within two games of that mark. But just because the top five in that division have been just out of this world good, all five of them over 40 points. All five of them would be winning the Pacific Division right now and in second place in the Eastern Eastern Division. So that's how strong the Metropolitan has been. And unfortunately for the Islanders and Devils, that puts them in a tough spot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's never ideal when you think you're playing good hockey and yet you still can't find any footing to climb up in the standings. I mean, that's not, that's gotta be a terrible feeling for a team knowing that you're doing, you know, you got off to a bad start. That's on you, but you're doing what you're supposed to be doing now. And it's not benefiting you enough. That's gotta be crushing for a team like that. But you're, I mean, as you said, you read, you read off all the, the records, the metropolitan division is the class of the NHL right now. And when you talk about Pittsburgh and New York being some of the, you know, some of the real, Stanley Cup contenders in the NHL. I I mean, as much as we could talk about what the Islanders need to fix and what the Devils need to fix, I mean, as you it mentioned, doesn't matter as at you this point. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. It, it really doesn't. We're that, talking about 10, 11 points back of a spot for Jersey and 13 points back of a spot for the Islanders. I mean, that I is mean, that's dead and buried. That is, you do not dig yourself out of this at this point of the season. Yeah, you'd have to go on one heck of a winning streak for you to even put yourself into contention to believe that you can come back. So for the for lack of a better term, those two teams out, I think one of the biggest questions, and because you and I have not had the ability, whether we haven't had a show or we have not had the time to talk NHL, I wanted to touch upon briefly when it comes to the Rangers, this the 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 goalie, how they are handling Henrik Lundqvist in relation <laughs> to that team. It, I, I hate to say controversy because not only well, controversy is more of a riding the hot hand. But, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, how do you take it? Do you take it as controversy? 
Well, no. I mean, Lundqvist came back and he had a shutout against Dallas the other night. So I think the controversy is, is more or less over. Lundqvist is the starter. I mean, very simply, I think Vigneault was riding who was the hot goalie in Ronta. And Ronta's numbers are just phenomenal this year. 13 games, 8-2, and two, 167 goals against, 941 save percentage, two shutouts. I mean, his numbers are a lot better than Lundqvist. He's played less games, sure, but he only has five less wins, even though he's played nine less games. So the guy, has he's outplayed Lundqvist. There's no doubt about that. And with all this in mind, Henrik Lundqvist is now 34 years old. He'll be 35 by the end of the season. He played 65 games last year. That's not happening this year. It was said even coming into the year that they're going to try to scale him back into the 55 to 60 realm. So if Ronta gets hot again, this could happen again. We could see Lumpkiss sit for two or three games in a row because they are going to try to rest him. But all that being said, if and when the Rangers make the playoffs, it will be Lumpkiss show unless he bombs out spectacularly and they have to pull the plug. That would be the only way. There is no goaltending controversy. It's just they're managing Lumpquist minutes. They're managing Lumpquist games. They have a very competent, younger backup in Ronta. And this is the outcome. Every once in a while, Lumpquist might sit for a week. They might give him a little bit of time to work with Ben Wilder, the Rangers' longtime excellent goaltending coach. Because what happens, too, is that starting goalies in the NHL, they don't really practice. Because you can't. It's not easy to practice, go to a morning skate, and then play a game that night. You can't do it. The legs just can't handle it. So that's why, too, Lumpkiss struggles a little bit. They'll sit him down a little bit just so he can practice, work with Benoit Allaire, and get himself back into the right frame of mind. No, I agree with that. And that's why I hesitate to call this a controversy, because I don't particularly deal with Demon as controversy. It's amusing as much as Right, and I think it's one of those things where because, and this had to have been conversations that have gone on since the start of the year, because it doesn't seem like Lundqvist's confidence was at all shaken in any of this. Sometimes you've seen that in the past when a goalie comes in, you know, a goalie sits out or another player sits out for a couple games and somebody comes in and gets a hot hand and rides it a little bit. Suddenly that person comes back onto the ice and is now thinking about what the other person was doing. You know, it doesn't seem like any of that is occurring. Him coming, Lundqvist coming out and throwing a shut up, a shutout up in his first game back, I think alleviates a lot of, you know, uh, any lasting issues, if there were to be any from this. Uh, But you're right. Barring him having a terrible, terrible rest of the regular season, come playoff time, and the Rangers look like a firm playoff team at this point in the season, come playoff time, this is the Lundqvist show till the end. I mean, you're going to live and die on him. He's uh, he's the captain of this team for all intents and purposes when it comes to, you know, getting this team from one postseason series to the next. He's the guy who's going to have to be there. But Antti Ranta, I, I just wanted to touch on him in particular because what he's done is tremendous in a very similar way to what the Rangers had, uh, what was it, two years ago with their backup goaltender who came in for Lundqvist, and I'm blanking on his Camp name Talbot. off the top of my head. Cam yes, Talbot. Talbot where yep. you had this kind of ability for Lundqvist to ease himself back from an injury, which was the reason why Talbot got in at that time, and then be able to flip Talbot at the end of the season for for a package. I mean, I, because of the age of Lundqvist, I'm not sure if they go that same route with Antiranta, 
But the way that he is playing right now, he is creating a market for himself. In, if a hole on this team suddenly arose due to injury or whatnot, he has now created a market for himself that the Rangers are uh, certainly not upset about. Well, here's if you like controversies, if you like conspiracy theories, here's one for you right now. The Rangers, they signed Ronta in the offseason to a two-year deal, so he's under contract for next season. He's not a free agent or anything like that. With the looming expansion draft, you can only protect. I have to look at all of the rules on the expansion draft. I don't think they've even officially released it yet. But typically speaking, you can only protect one goalie. Do you leave then 35-year-old Henrik Lundqvist and his $8.5 million salary until he's 39 unprotected and dare Vegas to take Lumquist and that contract thinking, you know what? If they take him, frees up a ton of money. Ronta, you feel as long as he keeps playing like this, you feel pretty good about him as your starter. But then, of course, you look to add somebody else who can maybe play 30 games or so, certainly a competent backup at the very least. Is that a, a riverboat gambler type of move that, depending on how this year goes, perhaps the Rangers consider? Well, you know what? The way that Anturanta has been playing, he's earned that he's earned the right for even that conversation to be had, whether it's ever actually taken or whether the Rangers ever actually go that route, which, as you mentioned, is a risky route. Although, apropos with it being the new Las Vegas franchise, but it is a risky <laughs> that is a risky bet to make for what has been the face of your franchise for as long as Lundqvist has been there. But Ranta has earned this conversation to be had in that scenario because of how well he has played. He is playing like a top-notch NHL goalie right now. And the only reason why he's not out there five of the six games a week is because there's someone of the talent and resume level of Henrik Lundqvist still on roster. Yeah, of course. And really, when we talk about that theoretical move, the public outcry would likely be way, right, exactly. way too much for the Rangers to, to ever risk Which it. We're talking about a guy who's been... I can't imagine it ever actually occurring, but yeah. his his performance has at least earned the sentence, the conversation to be uttered real quick. Yeah, it's just interesting to talk about and think about in the future, six, seven, eight months down the road. Because the other thing is that when the Rangers signed Ranta to a two-year contract, it was the last offseason, everybody knew that this expansion draft was coming. So thought process perhaps being, you know, why sign him to that two-year deal if you're then going to have to leave him unprotected anyway? Just sign him to a one-year deal at that point. But who knows, and anything is possible. That would be that would be interesting, certainly, to say the least, if after all these years, if, uh, if this would be the beginning of the end for Lumquist, if Lumquist ended up playing in black and gold in Las Vegas, it would certainly, I'll tell you this much, it would certainly give them the marketable star that we would think for a Vegas franchise to succeed that they'll need right off the bat. I mean, for Vegas to do well, they need stars. And that would be, it's an interesting thing to think about. It won't happen, but it's fun. Right. So we are out of show. That'll do it for us this week. We'll be off the next two weeks, and then we'll be back in 2017 after the holidays. And we'll be wishing you a new year when we do sign back on in a couple weeks. Until then, for Colin Henderson, I'm Ricky Sobrano, wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Happy.